Sylvia and me. Sylvia and Sylvia and me. Sylvia and Sylvia and me. Sylvia and Sylvia and me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hello, my name is Jessica Murphy. I teach and write about the history and culture of fragrance, and it's my pleasure to be here at Sylvia and Me. Jessica, thank you so much and welcome. Um, scent, perfume. You actually have uh, a website called Perfume Professor. Uh, you know, women wear perfume, men wear cologne, but I believe, and I could be wrong, that, you know, women and perfume and scent uh, goes back a, a long way. Um, it could really identify who a woman is. When I think of perfume these days, you know, of course, the top one is uh, Chanel, at least to me, Chanel number five. Um, and they have the most fantastic commercials. Um, so you are a, you're a blogger, you're a historian, you're a professor, you also work at the Brooklyn Museum, which I do want to get into in a little bit, only because there's one exhibit that you're doing that you've worked on, which brings back memories to me, for me. But can you kind of go into maybe a little bit of the history of, uh, of scent and, and perfume? Of course. I like to say that it's a very universal experience and it's an incredibly personal experience at the same time. And what do I mean by that? People have been making perfume, aromatics of different kinds, whether it was incense or perfumed oils or perfumed lotions or what we now think of as perfume that you spray or dab on. People have been making perfume for about 4,000 years starting in Mesopotamia and then extending that skill geographically eastward through Asia and westward through Europe. So this is something that people have done in pretty much every corner of the world for about four millennia and that people are still doing today. It's an ancient form of creativity. Can I ask you, um, could you tell us why it even started because uh, usually something starts because there's a need did somebody just say you know touch something go wow that smells good i want to smell like that we think the first uses were primarily religious and the creation of incense of solid substances that you would burn that then would turn into airborne aromas or smells, we think those were the first uses and we think they were mostly religious or spiritual, that they were intended as offerings to gods or ancestors or other kinds of beings that were seen as existing sort of above or beyond our reality. So these substances that burned and then turned into smoke were a way of reaching or communicating people in the afterlife or the heavens or whatever your particular belief system was. And then the use of aromatic substances that were put on the body also had early religious uses. If you think of ancient Egypts and mummies, there was a very elaborate, very technically sophisticated system of embalming and burying humans, uh, especially if they were the upper classes, they had very elaborate funerals. And the bodies were scented and embalmed. And that was partly to help preserve them, but partly again, to make them very special and worthy 
of entering the afterlife. Because aromatic substances for a long, long time were really costly and hard to find. So if you're using certain spices and flowers and even certain types of tree wood, they were things that people had had to travel to source and bring back. So they were precious substances. They were rare and costly. And they were used for special things, which was often religion, or if you were of the upper classes in the ancient Near East or ancient Egypt, you know, for self-adornment, for festivals, possibly for seduction, possibly to enhance and prolong your beauty. Okay. So for enhancing your beauty, um, that's really, and seduction, those are two things that we think of nowadays as far as why perfume. Yet it's very, very personal. Um, so when did it really become something that uh, the general public started even you know, thinking about? Because if you look at the, you know, the top brands, um, if everyone were to put it on, one would think everyone would smell the same. And a lot of them are so expensive. So how did this become uh, a commercial, uh, commercial uh, um, item that people could actually want to go out and, and you know, purchase? That is an excellent question. This is one of the things I love to read about and talk about because the history I know is primarily the history of Western perfumery and in Europe, perfume was really something that was available primarily to aristocracy and the upper classes for centuries. So long after ancient Egypt, it was really something you had to have a lot of money to buy in small amounts. And then a lot happens in the mid to later 1800s. And I love perfume because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Perfume is tied into history in so many different ways, into the history of trade and economics, into the history of religion the history of technology, the history of how we think about gender and style, all these different issues are lenses that you can use to think about perfume. So in the mid, let's say the mid 1800s, the industrial revolution occurs and this changes many fields, but it does change perfume in a few ways. First, there's the development of synthetic ingredients or perfume, aroma chemicals. And up to that point, all perfume is natural perfume. And I know over the past 20 years or so, there's been a real interest in natural perfumery, but all perfume was natural until these synthetics were developed in labs in around the 1870s and onwards. And synthetics are more shelf stable. They're more consistent. You can make them in greater volume and store them. You're not worrying about what this year's crop of jasmine was like. So more perfume could be produced more cheaply than ever before. And that changed you know, what this was in terms of consumerism. And then you have things like trains that are able to ship goods further and faster than ever before. There are improvements in glass making. So you can have different kinds of bottles and make them faster and cheaper, just like the perfumes. So all these different historical and technological notes come together to make perfume something that's more within the grasp of this expanding demographic, the middle class who are living closer and closer to cities where there are more and more stores, department stores. So there are even more places to buy perfume. 
You have illustrations coming into newspapers and magazines that perfumes can be advertised more visually. It's kind of a perfect storm for getting more people curious about something that they can afford, which they wouldn't have been able to 100 years prior. So when we talk perfume um, and we call it scent, we can call it perfume because I think scent to me is a little bit different. Yes, perfume of course has a scent, but then so does some, you know, some types of wood, flowers and so on. So we're gonna stick with perfume right now um, and then we'll delve into scent. Um, when we think of perfume, we really think about women um, not so much men uh, right now, and yet men use aftershave, uh, lotion, and, and so on. So was this at the beginning, I know you talked about for religious reasons, and then, you know, it kind of moved on, but was this mainly uh, the majority of people using this, women, and then did it kind of migrate to men realizing, well, wait a minute, you know, why should they smell so good? Actually, it was almost the reverse. Both genders were wearing perfume often. The people who could afford it, men and women, were wearing perfume almost equally for a really long time. And just like all perfume was natural, all perfume for a very long time was really gender free. And I know there's also an interest lately in like gender neutral perfume or unisex perfume, but for a very long time, those definitions didn't exist. And at different times and places, you'll see men wearing violet or you'll see women wearing very strong musk and things that we might not expect in the 20th or 21st century, but those are cultural tastes and they shift over time. So for a long time, men were wearing fragrance just as often as women. For example, in the 1700s, if you've seen movies like Dangerous Liaisons, you know, you noticed upper class men, men at the royal court wearing just as elaborate clothing as women in some ways in velvets and brocades and ribbons and perhaps wearing some facial makeup and they were wearing fragrance too. It's really around that same time that perfume changes technically and in the way it's sold and becomes more affordable that men also start wearing it less and less in the later 1800s in the Western world. There becomes a little bit more of a division in women being more decorative and men being a little bit less so. And I think they've always obviously continued, like you said, to wear aftershave, to wear certain men's colognes, but I think we expect women to wear perfume a little more intensely or a little more often than men. And when we're talking about that, um, especially with women, and again, you know, men do wear aftershave, it becomes almost their signature. Um, you know, you try a lot of things. And as we talk about, you know, it can be, um, it could give somebody a lot of self-confidence to well, if they use it properly and not douse themselves with it, but you know the self-confidence of of just as as you know we we've uh, not you and I specifically, but as it's known that a smile could make you know you walk out a smile could make the world you know brighter and make yourself feel better. Just a little dab of some perfume that or some scent that you think. Um, makes you 
you know, can brighten up your day and, and, and you walk out and, and you feel good. So it's not just, again, a vanity thing. It could really help somebody's confidence, even though that sounds vain, but it, 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 it could. Um, and considering if we add in where scent, you know, started from. So who are some of the uh, creative people who have um, discovered or found different ways of coming up with perfume and really maybe, I know that it probably wasn't affordable uh, way back when, but you speak about um, Anne Haviland, um, the forgotten, you call her the forgotten mastermind of the signature scent. And I've never heard of her um, until I read your article. So tell me why you, you know, chose her. What did she do that some of the other people, how did she look at perfume that others had not looked at before? Oh, I love that you looked at that article, which I wrote for the website Atlas Obscura, as you can guess by the name, if you haven't looked at it, they're interested in posting articles about obscure subjects and places and people. And they liked this idea when I pitched it to them because they hadn't heard of Anne Haviland either. And I forget how I came across her. It was a totally unrelated search. And I saw this name and I saw this article. I thought, that's interesting. I've never heard of her. And I got fascinated. She was a perfumer in New York active in the 1910s, I wanna say. Yeah, 10s into the 1920s. And she had this really interesting approach of comparing perfume to visual art, which is something I'm really interested in. We can get into a little more even later and personalizing perfume. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware that people were thinking that early about perfume being something so personal. And this was something I said at the beginning of our conversation, it's such a universal experience, but it's such a personal one because this is something that is on your skin and goes through your day and changes with you. And you really have to feel that connection with the scent you're wearing because it's closer to you than pretty much anything else in your day. She was interested in personality and psychology. And this is the moment when the field of psychology is growing and people are taking an interest in it. And it seems like there are a couple other people doing similar things, but she was the one I read about. And she thought a lot about meeting the person that she might create a custom perfume for, getting to know them, really thinking about their interests and their personality. And I believe sometimes she even taught thought in terms of color. So it was almost a multi-sensory or synesthetic approach for her. And then creating these bespoke fragrances that would echo and enhance the personality of that individual wearer. And there were a lot of beautiful perfumes already out there in 1910, 1915, but this was a kind of fun and fresh idea that you could have one made for you. Not just that you liked because you liked lilac or you liked uh, sandalwood or whatever, but something that she would really craft and tailor to the way she saw your personality. She worked with the actress Theta Barra, who was known as The Vamp and starred in the movie Cleopatra and created a custom fragrance for her. And she talked about really having to spend some time with this very famous actress, this trendsetter of her time, to get to know her a little bit before she could make the perfume because her initial impression of Theta Barra was then followed by a different impression once they got a little bit more intimate. And I like that idea that perfume can help uncover or 
enhanced sides of you that maybe aren't the side you always put out there first. You know, I think we all have a few different faces or a few different facets, depending on different situations or days or moods. And I love the idea of the signature scent and I really don't have one. <laughs> I have a lot of favorites because I think we all have different sides that come out in different circumstances. And maybe we wanna boost a certain side or you know, compliment or pull out a certain side. And I didn't know that someone had been thinking about this a hundred years before. So that was why I enjoyed reading about Anne Haviland. That was great. And um, you talked about the fact that she looked at it as an artistic, she had a more artistic look and maybe even looked at colors. And as you said, you know, you work for the Brooklyn Museum, you do, you work on exhibits. Um, and there's one specific exhibit that caught my eye and it's called A Night Out in a, in a Bottle, Looking Back at the Fragrance that Defined Studio 54. And I need to bring this up as I told you uh, when we first met because Studio 54 way back when um, I remember going there before they even had a liquor license. And I don't care that it's dating me because it was fun. So why did you, right, why did you associate, how, how does one go about associating something like a Studio 54 and, and, um, and scent and, 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 and what you do? You're a historian, you're a perfume professor. I mean, Studio 54 could have been the Cotton Club. Why, why would you, associate scent and perfume with a place like Studio 54. <laughs> that is great. And I love having a chance to talk about that a little bit, especially now that it's over and I'm already nostalgic for it. And I think we have a lot of nostalgia for the 1970s. I, let's just say I just missed being able to go to Studio 54 or I wasn't able to do it personally. So I'm envious that you were. And yeah, this was this was sort of a dream project at my my day job, shall I say, my profession, my career is working in museums. It's something I've been doing for about 20 years. The name of my blog where I write about fragrance is Perfume Professor. I'm being a little cheeky there. No, you have uh, I, I mentioned <laughs> it and I would ask you what the name of the blog is because this is interesting. Uh, you know, we don't always have to do uh, people don't have to think that something has to be huge and this and that because look perfume does a lot for for people and it's and it's interesting and evidently you find it interesting because that's what you do that's your profession so let's go back to something like a studio 54 why would you even think of scent and Studio 54 and doing an exhibit around that? Well, my title at the museum is Manager of Visitor Engagement. So I work a lot on different tour ideas and different ways to connect visitors with a show once it's open, in addition to just buying a ticket and seeing it, which is exciting enough. This exhibition was originally planned to open on March 13th, 2020. It was open for about a day before we shut down, unfortunately, for obvious COVID related reasons. We were able to reopen it from September to November, about six months later, fortunately. So it had a shorter run than we intended, but at least it was open. 
This show was curated in-house by one of our senior curators, whose name is Matthew Yakubowski, and he spent a couple years researching every aspect of Studio 54 for this show, which came to be titled Studio 54 Night Magic. And as someone who had always heard about Studio 54 and had a few mental images or ideas, I was fascinated to see the results of his research. There were hundreds and hundreds of objects in this show. There were photographs of things that happened there, some posed, some, shall we say, a little bit more candid photographs. There was a lot of fashion, so we could see works by all different American and European designers whose clothes were actually worn at Studio 54. There was ephemera like guest lists and tickets and uh, drink tickets and invitations to different parties. There was a lot of video of things happening at Studio 54. And there was music playing throughout the whole show. So it was already a combination of music and fashion and photography and printed materials and like newspaper pages. So it already appealed to you in all different ways. And then there's one interesting moment in the show where there's a nod to the fact that the launch party for Yves Saint Laurent Opium was actually held at Studio 54. Actually, the launch party was held on a very large ship in New York Harbor. The after party was held. At oh, well, it was always an after party. Of course, and that's that's where the real fun is, right? <laughs> and it was this celebrity-studded late-night event at Studio 54 with Yves Saint Laurent, his whole entourage, and like every celebrity you could think of from Truman Capote to, I believe, Grace Jones was there. So it was a fantastic party that went down as, you know, one of the best parties, even at Studio 54, which was saying something. So I thought, well, that's a really interesting perfume connection. Are there any others I could look into? And I started, I read some reminiscences of partygoers, regulars at studio and the different smells. And there was definitely like a lot of sweat and cigarette smoke back when people smoked in bars and clubs and, you know, the booze. And yeah, there were definitely certain drug aromas, shall we say. But people did mention that there was often sort of a cloud of perfume in the air too, because people were dressing up to go out. And that was one of the big things about Studio 54. After the 60s and early 70s, the natural look was not as much in. Glamming up again to go out on the town at night was something that was happening. So you had full makeup, you had hair, you had fantastic outfits you chose because you wanted to get past that velvet rope to get into Studio 54. And you had to have style and energy, especially if you weren't in a celebrity. You had to have a real look. And perfume was part of the look. So then I got out, um, I looked through Vogue. I read through Vogue magazine for the three years and a bit that Studio 54 was actually open to see what was being advertised and what the articles about perfume said. I talked to a few people, male and female, who had been there and asked them what they liked wearing to Studio 54, which was really helpful for me to hear. Some of the people I talked to were well-known, like the makeup artist, Sandy Lincher, who did wear opium. Some of them were just friends of mine who went often and told me what they had worn, like a little informal sampling. And I thought of it just in part of, as part of the whole approach the show took to Studio 54, that it wanted to immerse you in that experience. And it wanted to get you in the space and get you feeling the pounding of the bass and the music that was playing there. And there's a lot of kinetic lighting in the show meant to make you feel like you were in a nightclub. So it was meant to sort of wrap you up and carry you away, which I think was something we needed even more after being uh, in lockdown for so many months with COVID, although it wasn't planned that way. It was an interesting irony. So I put together a presentation on Sense at Studio 54 and chose a handful 
uh, tried to hit a few different notes and things that people would have worn. And I had a visual presentation showing the fashion of the times, the interior of Studio 54, some different celebrities who fronted some of these perfumes, because this is a moment that you get more and more celebrity endorsements. And some of those celebrities, not surprisingly, were also regulars at Studio. So it was a fun combination of what was already on the show and then my own research into primary sources and conversations, a little bit of creativity. It was supposed to be an on-site event. We ended up doing it as a Zoom talk. And I sent everyone a little sample set of the five or six perfumes we'd be smelling so they could sniff along while I was playing my presentation and talking. So even though we couldn't be in the museum, we tried to make it the next best thing. But to me, how fascinating. Um, at least I wouldn't have thought to um, match up scent, Studio 54, uh, and, and, and uh, to me, what you did was give us a, a, a sense or a scent <laughs> of what it would have been like. So it's not just, perfume is not just perfume that uh, you spend hundreds of dollars on, you could get you know, perfume on just about any scale these days. But it seems to me that it's, it started off as a very personal thing and that no matter what we do, there's some way you can take a look and match almost um, the scent that someone is either around or wearing and come up with um, the reasons behind it and, and match up history to, to it. And that's fascinating. That really is, it goes beyond, you know, I'm gonna take this bottle, put it on, you know, there are people who pour it all over themselves and then you're, you know, you're walking away. But it's very, it's, it's an empowering thing, tool that you can use. So I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. As I said, it's not something I would have thought of as putting together, but you're the professor and um, I, I think it's wonderful. What shows do you have coming up? Anything, anything we should look for? Um, nothing with a scent element, unfortunately, but a couple of very different and interesting one artist shows. And I don't have the exact dates on hand. No, that's okay. In mid-February, a large-scale show of the former street artist, now very successful contemporary artist, Cause, K-A-W-S. And then opening in March, a really amazing retrospective of the 86-year-old artist Lorraine O'Grady, who I think, I think I first learned about her when I was working at the Brooklyn Museum, and we've shown her work in a couple other group shows, but this is the first time we're doing a large show, all of her work. And it's a career retrospective of a very long, rich, brilliant career. So I'm very excited about that show and helping to put tours together for visitors. Okay, so I want to go back to what your passion is, which it seems to be is perfume, scent. Um, are you able to walk into a room and identify what someone is wearing? Once in a while, once in a while, there are certain things that are so distinctive and really have a signature that you can't miss them. Shalimar is one of those. 
I think I might also be able to smell that because someone in my family wore it when I was young and I loved it on her and I can always recognize it. And there are a few more recent things that are very distinctive, like Terry Mugler's Angel or the past couple of years, Le Labo Santal. So once in a while, often though, not, not that easily, because I think there are a lot of perfumes out there that do tend to smell like each other and aren't quite as distinctive. So it has to be something pretty distinctive. But what you really say that. But what you just said, something came to, you know, ding dong up here. Um, it, and, and people will say, say this, that it reminds them of maybe someone they lost or someone they knew. They walk in a room and, and it can be so powerful that it could bring back some really great memories. So it's not just a question of, putting perfume on for yourself um, without even thinking about it, you're creating memories and history for, for other people. It's so true. It's a really powerful connection. Often when I talk to other women, they will mention women in their own families or their early life. And you know, I can tell you most of the perfumes my mother has worn during my life my grandmother definitely never left the house without her lipstick and perfume. So that's probably where I got the initial interest, but I've heard it from a lot of other women that a fragrance will remind them of a woman or a man in their early life or their later life. And that connection is something that's still really potent and special. So that is one way it connects. And another interesting thing I noticed when I first really got interested in perfume, uh, and let's say like this is the early 2000s, I'd always been wearing it, but when the internet gave birth to message boards where people could chat anonymously on any topic imaginable, I was lucky to happen into a very active message board called makeupalley.com. And we were all there anonymously. We were from all over the United States and Europe and some other countries. And it was really a community in a very special way at the time. A lot of the users were women, not, not all of them, but it was quite a few women. And we could talk about perfume in this very personal, unfiltered, generous way and share information and get to know each other through our tastes in perfume. And I still remember the nicknames of a lot of those women, their screen names. Some of them even became real life friends a little bit later on, we decided to meet up in person and step from behind the veil of the internet. And some of those women I'm still friends with 10, 12 years later. So we found we had other interests that we shared and we ended up having real friendships beyond the perfume interest. So it also can be a sense of connection. It can be a sense of community in the way that a lot of other interests can. I was fortunate to find that at the time that I did when I was writing my PhD dissertation in art history and really needed an outlet and somewhere else to go to talk about something else that was just very personal and special to me away from the dissertation and away from the museum work. And I happened to find it there at just the right time with a very special group of primarily women on that message board. Well, that's fantastic. See, if people wouldn't, may not think of something like perfume as something that can be, can boost someone's self-confidence, can uh, empower them, uh, can give them memories, can bring, you know, thoughts of, of people that maybe they have lost, can uh, you take a look at something like Studio 54 and how you were able to, to really 
meld that together and, and, and take it from a perspective that who would have thought? Um, so I, I think this is great. And you have, tell us your website. It is called Perfume Professor, perfumeprofessor.net. I also write for the blog Now Smell This every couple of weeks. That was started in, I started there in 2007. I think the blog, the blog sorry. I think the blog itself was launched in 2004, 2005. It was one of the first perfume blogs and I was lucky to get a little gig writing for that when it took off. So that was my first perfume publication. So I continue there and I also blog on my own as perfume professor. And I give talks now online, but I used to give them in person. And I hope I will again before too long about the history and culture of perfume, because it's something I was a little intimidated about when I first joined those message boards. Some people seem to know a lot. And we're talking about all these brands I didn't know about. And there, I felt like there was a little bit of a learning curve, but they were so friendly and generous that it was helpful. So I think fragrance is one of those many things, like for me, it would be something like wine, or a classic film where, or jazz where I'm embarrassed to admit I don't really know that much or I know a little bit, but haven't really gotten past it. And sometimes it takes a couple of connections or a couple first steps and someone to help you demystify it a little bit and just put you at ease or taking a class or finding a friend who's also interested in going to a class with them. And then you get to hone your senses in a whole new way, put your senses to use in a whole new way and feel like part of a tradition that goes back in perfume's case for 4,000 years. So I love perfume the same way I love art or books or music that has a history, it has a creative process. It's something that can bring people together. It's something that can also be really private and personal when you want it to be. Well, look at, look at the scope of, of perfume. I think it's wonderful. Jessica, I thank you so much for, for having this conversation. And I've learned a lot. Um, and I, I just, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. And as you said, it brings people together. It's not just something that people will throw on because somebody else has it. It's, it's, it's really personal and it, it does a lot for a lot of people. So I thank you um, for having this conversation today. I could not agree more with you on that, on perfume's importance in so many different ways and everyone finds their own way, I think. And it was really my great pleasure to speak with you today. So thank you for this invitation, Sylvia. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for joining me today. On our next podcast, I'll be talking to another extraordinary, inspiring woman who has made her mark on the world. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and, of course, our website, sylviaandme.com. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to keep up with the latest episodes. Review, rate, and take us with you wherever you are. I want to hear from you. If you know of an extraordinary, inspiring woman, please contact me at sylvia at lifeofprey.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay safe. Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive, 
they have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at UpperDeckFitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.